0: Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hetzron. And Hetzron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot nation. and, And Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shaltiel. And Shaltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abihud, Abihud begot Eliakim. And Eliakim begot Atzor. Atzor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Akim. And Akim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Matan. And Matan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon... Are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ. Are 14 generations. The Bible presents Jesus. As the object of human history. And the Jewish scriptures filled with history. And filled with poetry. And filled with prophecy. All point to Jesus. And so of course people ask the question who is Jesus? What is it about this man and his ministries and his activities that draw our attention and our affection to him? Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as the long awaited fulfillment of the ancient promises for a king and a messiah. More than any other gospel, Matthew's focus is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Both for Israel and for the world. One commentator said, The genealogy of Jesus Christ is not a barren ground for preaching and teaching. It yields rich fruit. The person who will seek out Jesus' roots. And we seek out his roots, his Hebrew roots. He is the king of the Jews again, the Bible is going to invite us to consider whether or not he is the king of our lives. And so what ripe fruit, what ripe fruit might we find? And the thing that I'm going to suggest to you is that we're going to be able to pick up baskets full of God's sovereignty and providence, God's mercy and God's grace and God's love. Jesus doesn't depend on his ancestry. His ancestry depends on him. And this becomes the key concept because most of us who are at all interested in genealogies, maybe you've done a genealogical search of your own family and you go back and maybe some of you can go back a generation or two generations or three generations or five generations or, or ten generations and we begin to think about, define ourselves in terms of where we've come from. And we understand that Abraham is an important figure in history. But do you realize that if Abraham had the ability to walk up to that mic. And I asked him the question. Abraham what do you think is the most important thing about you? He would say. The Lord Yeshua said before Abraham was I am. Abraham's importance. Incredible as it is, finds fruition and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. St. John of Damascus wrote, Providence is the care God takes of all existing things. Augustine said, Trust the past to the mercy of God, the present to his love, the future to his providence. Warren Weersby writes, Providence is God's control of circumstances so that his will prevails and his purposes are fulfilled. So when we use that term providence, what we're going to be doing is we're going to apply it not only about God's sovereign ability to press history to fulfill his plan. But if it's true of history, I'm going to suggest that it's true of you. That God has the ability to press your life and your circumstances and your relationship into his will and into his purposes. Satan's plan was to thwart the plan of God and prevent the Messiah from coming. Cain will kill Abel, Abraham will disobey God, and Sarah is almost lost, and the promised seed almost ruined. At one time in the royal seed, it's going to come down to a narrow channel. All the offspring of David slain, except for young Josiah in Second Kings chapter 11. The genealogy isn't simply a list of names, but a testimony of God's faithfulness in making promises and then keeping promises in preserving the children of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac and Jacob, as the channel through whom the Lord Jesus Christ will come. And so the genealogy is divided into three broad historical sections from Abraham to Jesse. From David to Josiah. From Jeconiah to Joseph. The first period covers the patriarchal period, which again will begin in Abraham and continue to the reign of David. The second covers the tumultuous kingdom period. And the third preserves the record of the royal descent From the exile, which takes place at about 586 BC, as you push forward into the very life of Joseph, who will become the husband of Mary, to about 7 to 4 BC. And so we begin with the king's royal ancestry. Look at verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's account begins with two critical historical figures, Abraham and David. David is Jesus' royal father. Abraham is Jesus' racial father. And so when he writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, genealogy in this particular instance in this text means the genesis or the beginning, if you will, or the origin. And of course, as strange as it may seem, many people think that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his second name, but that's not true. Christ is a title, it translates the anointed one, which is taken from the Hebrew promises concerning the Messiah or the Mashiach. And so to the first century Jew, this was absolutely, positively, un. Conditionally important. A genealogy proved that the person was an Israelite. Identified tribal associations. Qualified certain Jews for certain religious duties. Tasks, offices, and occupations. You couldn't be a priest serving in the temple. Unless you shared the lineal line. That came from the tribe of Levi. Through the tribal groupings of Moses and his brother Aaron and their offspring. So Abraham precedes David by about a thousand years, and David precedes Jesus by about a thousand years. But it's important for the first century Jew, when the claim is being made, that Jesus is the king of the Jews, that it's going to require the proper credentials. In Mark's gospel, his audience is primarily Roman. And so Jesus is presented as the servant of God. A servant of God doesn't need a pedigree or a genealogy. In Luke's gospel, his audience is primarily Greek. And he is going to present Jesus as the perfect son of man. But in order to be the perfect son of man, you have to have a real relationship to humanity. And so Luke traces the identity of Jesus all the way back in time to the very beginning of human history, Adam. You and Jesus share a common ancestry, Adam is your father. Enoch is your father. Methuselah was your father. Noah was your father. Was your father. And for most of us, it gets lost after Noah because he has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Ham becomes the progenitor of the African peoples. Shem becomes the progenitor of the... Semitic peoples in the Middle East, Japheth becomes the progenitor of much of those people who will occupy what you and I call Europe and and even parts of Asia. In John's gospel, there's this universal appeal and Jesus is presented as the eternal son of God. And since Matthew's gospel is primarily Jewish in appeal and character, Jesus is presented as Christ and King. And so what do we mean when we say that the gospel is Jewish, both in nature and character? Well, what we mean by that is, number one, it's written by a first century Jew, a tax collector named Levi. And we'll find out more about him in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and Luke chapter 5, and in Mark chapter 2. But again, can you imagine? You are going to be the Messiah, and you're going to start a movement, and you're going to start a ministry, and so you decide to pick the most hated person in the neighborhood to be your assistant pastor. Because of its location in the Bible, the first gospel... Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament covenant. And because of its use in citations, allusions and references to the Jewish writings... There are 53 direct quotations in Matthew from the Old Testament. There are 76 indirect references to the Old Testament. For a total of 129 either direct or indirect citations, Matthew will quote 25 of the 39 Old Testament books. He will use one word, Over and over and over again. It's the word fulfilled. You'll discover that Jesus fulfills the prophecy. In his identity. In his mission. The gospel refers to Jesus as the son of David and is filled with references to the kingdom of heaven, which is a Jewish concept. And so this gospel can rightly be called the kingdom gospel or the gospel of the king. And the Jewish character of this gospel is also found in the material that's unique to this gospel. The genealogy, which we just read in verses one through seventeen, the information about Joseph, Jesus's early stepfather, but who happens to be a royal person and the heir to the throne and the husband of Mary, in chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-five. The mission of the disciples to the lost sheep of the children of Israel in chapter ten. The Lord's stinging rebukes to the religious leaders in chapter twenty-three. The several. Kingdom parables unique only to this gospel in chapter 20 and 21 and 22 and, and, and 23. And so we discover that this gospel is arranged in such a way to bring us back to the reoccurring theme. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is rejected by his people. Jesus is crucified for the whole world. Jesus is alive in heaven. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of 1 Chronicles seventeen fourteen and other passages that announce that the kingdom is coming and the kingdom is coming and with the kingdom is coming a king. And so he'll talk about that the king has come in Matthew 4. He'll state the laws of the kingdom in in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in a section that I'm going to call the king's constitution. He'll fulfill prophecy in chapter 21. And some of the features of Christ's rejection will include the religious leaders attributing to Jesus the supernatural powers that he has to Satan because no one, no one, no one disputes that he has power. Unexplainable power. The power to open deaf ears and blind eyes, to so the, the power to control the weather, the the power to bring the dead back to life. Even his enemies and critics never disputed that power. What they disputed is where it came from. And so they refused the testimony. Of his miracles. They refused to accept his deity. They refused by calling him the carpenter's son and by calling him simply a prophet, seeking his death, denying his message, refusing to believe in him. And so in the first ten chapters, we have the revelation of the king. He reveals himself to the Jews concerning his person in verse chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And then his principles in chapters 5 through 7. And then we get a glimpse at his power in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Does Jesus have the credentials to substantiate his royal claim? And in this first chapter, Matthew gives us the human ancestry in verses 1 through 17. Then describes the birth of Jesus in verses 18 through 25. But when we fast forward and we move through this revelation called the Gospels. And we come to the end of the book in Revelation chapter 22 verse 16. We see Jesus described as the root and the offspring of David. The beginning and the end. He is the root in the sense that Jesus is the eternal God who brings David into being. And he is the offspring of David in his humanity. And remember, this is that dilemma that he presents to the religious leaders. Remember the religious leaders who will question his authority, who will in skepticism and unbelief say, why are you doing what you're doing? And Jesus says, I'm going to answer you why I'm doing what I'm doing, but first you answer me this. Is the Messiah the son of David? Yes. How then in the book of Psalms does David call him Lord? And they looked at each other and they go, that's a good one. He's got us this time. We have no idea how to answer him. So they say to him, we don't know. And he says, neither will I tell you why and by what authority I do this. Do you know why? Because the answer, they're absolutely unwilling to believe. The reason why David calls Jesus Lord is because Jesus is both God and King. In verses two, look what it says Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah. He begins to go through the royal line, Abraham, the covenant and the promise given to him. Isaac, the covenant and the promise given to him. Jacob, the promise and the covenant given to him. He begets 12 sons, but only one of those sons will be the royal torchbearer, if you will. There's only one lineal descent that could be described as a kingly descent, and that's Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And that unfortunate incident we're going to come back to in just a moment. Perez begot Etzron, and Etzron begot Ram. Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon Salmon Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Remember, she's the one who's called the harlot in the book of Joshua. And a person who's an occupant of Jericho, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Those of you who are familiar with that book. Obed begets Jesse and Jesse begets David who is the king. And David the king begets Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. The text, the holy text inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew won't even write her name. But we know her name. It's Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah Asa, and Asa Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat Joram, Joram Uzziah. And you'll remember in Isaiah chapter 6, this is the same Uzziah that Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah was that king who brings back prosperity and dignity, and we might even say national pride. It's as if you're once again proud to be a Jewish person. Uzziah begets Jotham, but before Uzziah begets Jotham, he intrudes on to the priestly office. He is not content to simply be a king. He also wants to be a priest, and so he's smitten with leprosy. Ahaz begets Hezekiah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Manasseh, Ammon, Ammon, Josiah. Josiah is that singular seed where all of his brothers and all of the offspring are killed. And he begets Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they're carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel and Sheltiel begot Zerubbabel. The writer of the genealogy is going to again, focus on what it means that Jesus is the lineal descent and the right to bear the crown of Israel, tracing from Abraham to the time of David, and then from the time of David to the captivity, and from the time of the captivity to the time that Matthew finds himself in in the first century. Josiah begets Jeconiah. And here we have a mention of Jeconiah. For those of you who are unfamiliar, perhaps, with the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 22, which we studied a long time ago, and which some of you remember, but in chapter 22, verse 30, God pronounces a curse on this man. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper. Sitting on the throne of David, uh oh, we have a problem. And ruling anymore in Judah, uh oh, we have a problem. God pronounces a curse on Jeconiah and on his offspring. If Jesus is the biological son of Joseph, he's going to bear that curse. And so, how are we going to get around this curse? You know, the Bible says that all human beings are under a curse it's the curse of sin. The curse of sin has created something inside of us that requires a solution. Was Satan aware of God's promise to David? I think that the answer is yes. Was Satan aware of this curse? I suspect that Satan counted on this curse. That God's promise to David for all intents and purposes was dead in the water. And Satan must have re- rejoiced. He must have thought the link is broken. The curse cannot mean that Jeconiah would go childless. Because we discover in First Chronicles chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the children are listed. So what the curse requires is that as far as the royal throne is concerned, the royal line through David and Solomon grinds to a screeching halt. In this person, Jeconiah. But what a rude, what a rude awakening. When the devil learns that God isn't limited to one line. And that David had another son, Nathan. And that Nathan would preserve David's seed. And Mary would give birth to David's son, The devil is looking for a father to generate a son. And the Bible says that God was going to find a woman who was going to generate a son. And the devil must have thought, I missed that one. I didn't see that coming. The problem is solved and resolved in a miraculous virgin birth. Jesus is the legal heir through Joseph. Jesus is the biological, genetic, real son of David through Mary. The curse on Jeconiah doesn't fall on Mary or her children since she's not a direct descendant of Jeconiah. And Zerubbabel begets Abiud, and Abiud, Eliakim, Eliakim, Azor, Azor, Zadok, Zadok, Akim, Akim, Elud, Eliud, Eliezer, Eliezer begot Mathan, Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born, not by Joseph, apart biologically from Joseph, was born Jesus, who is called. The anointed one, the promised one. Now all of a sudden we begin to understand something. In most genealogies, remember, it is the nature and the character and the fame. Of the people who go before you, who somewhat begin to define your life. But Jesus turns the whole genealogy on its head and says the reason why Abraham is important, the reason why Isaac is important, the reason why Jacob is important, the reason why Judah is important, and even the reason why David is important is because of God's plan and God's future. So why include the genealogy of Joseph? Joseph isn't the biological father. No, but Jesus is Joseph's legal heir. And you see, everybody in the first century would have understood that. You see, with adoption comes all of the rights and privileges. And first century people understood that. Julius Caesar adopts Augustus, and no one questions his right to be the true emperor of Rome. Augustus adopts Tiberius. No one rejects Tiberius as king. Tiberius will adopt Caligula. Caligula will be murdered. So he doesn't have time to adopt anybody else. His uncle Claudius will become the emperor. Claudius will adopt his nephew Nero. Nero is also murdered. And then there's a series of four kings quickly emerging in the middle of the sixth century, or the sixth decade of the first century. You'll have. Otho, you'll have Galba, you'll have Vitellius, and Vespasian will emerge as the emperor of Rome. His oldest son, Titus, will become the emperor. His younger son, Domitian, will become the emperor. He too is murdered, and there will be a series of emperors who will, uh, will, who will be without progeny, and they will have to adopt their heirs. Antoninus Pius will adopt Trajan. Trajan will adopt Hadrian. Hadrian will ad- adopt Marcus Aurelius. So everyone understands that a king is no less a king because he's adopted. And we note five women in the the genealogy. Now this again is interesting in and of itself because Jewish genealogical lists would rarely contain a woman. So why this one? particularly in a culture, in a society where a woman is more considered to be a thing that is owned by her father or a thing that is owned by her husband. As a matter of fact, every single observant Jew in the first century would wake up in the morning and pray this prayer. Oh God of heaven, thank you that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you that I was born a man and not a woman. You laugh. But it shows you just how profound the disconnect. And yet, there's Tamar. You know the story in Genesis chapter 38. She marries Judah's oldest son and he dies. The middle son, he dies. And Judah starts to get suspicious. It's like everybody I... I, have this lady Mary they wind up dying and and so she secretly poses as a prostitute and seduces Judah into sexual relations in Genesis chapter 38. And Judah's obviously not guiltless by any means in the drama. Rahab is called the harlot, a Gentile who becomes the wife of an Israeli prince. She's from Jericho in Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Ruth, Ruth is a Moabitess. This is a Gentile, a stranger to the covenant of Israel, who enters the royal line only through the Leverite marriage to Boaz, her husband's near kinsman. A member, The Moabite is a member of a despised, alien, hated race. Bathsheba, not mentioned by name in the text, but by her who had been the wife of Uriah. David seduces her, has her husband killed in what might be called an unforgivable cruelty. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12. But imagine, you are the king of the universe, and you can orchestrate your own genealogy. And so Jesus goes, I think I'm going to throw in a liar, a cheat, a couple of whores. Does does that shock you? Does it surprise you? Mary, even though she's guilty of no unchaste behavior, yet her pregnancy is going to be shrouded in a cloud of mystery and criticism that still preoccupy scholars to this very day. What do all these women have in common? A checkered past. But all of this, again, speaks of the mercy of God, which goes out to the most sinful and the depraved, the name of Ruth, loyal and devoted, yet a stranger speaks of God's grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, there was a prohibition that was given to the Jews forbidding any Ammonite, any Moabite entrance into the congregation of the Lord. Tamar, Rahab, ex-harlots, Ruth, former pagan, Bathsheba, ex-adulteress, Tamar, distant grandmother of David, Rahab, great-great-grandmother of David, Ruth, great-grandmother of David, Bathsheba, beloved wife, and mother of Solomon. And all of a sudden we see an ancestry filled with people, some who loved and trusted God, and some that rebelled against God. So why, why, why would a sovereign God write into his son's roots such an assortment? I know you've asked that same question about yourself. Lord, why did you, why did you birth me into this family? Lord, how do you explain my circumstance? And could it be that God's providence and preservation of these people is a a testimony of his grace and his mercy towards these people? And so it tells us something about God, and it tells us something about ourselves, and whatever else it means, whatever else it means, the writer of the book in Matthew and even the genealogy is beginning to tell us that the barriers are going to be coming down. You see, in Jesus's genealogy, there are four women who are Gentiles. The barrier between Jew and Gentile, it's about to come down. The barrier between man and woman, it's about to come down. There's a glimpse, there's a glimpse of the truth that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free. Male or female. Here is the beginning of God's love and the beginning of God's grace and the beginning of God's mercy shown to all people. And since the barriers between male and female drop, and since the old prejudices and contempts are supposed to evaporate, men and women are to be equally dear, equally loved, equally important, equal candidates for salvation. And even the distinction between saint and sinner blurs in what way? Somehow, some way, God can and does. He uses wicked people. And incorporates them in his plan and his purposes so that even if there's been a wicked person in your past, it doesn't preclude you from having a right relationship with God. Does an unbelieving ancestor or a cruel ancestor or a wicked ancestor Mean that you're under a generational curse and that there's no way that you could possibly have a right relationship with God in Christ. And the Bible's answer is the curse is lifted in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know a way to break the curse, the way you break the curse is you turn from your sin and you turn to the Savior. Think about it. Every single person born apart from God, born apart from Christ, born in darkness, they awaken to a world in rebellion and disobedience and they walk away from God and they walk into the shadows. And as they walk away from God and they walk into the shadows, there's this constant invitation calling out to them to come to Christ, to turn to Christ, to, to, to experience what it means to know forgiveness and hope. This is why in the kingdom, the first word out of the mouth of the preacher is going to be repent. Turn from that journey that you've taken into the darkness and the shadows and turn around. Turn around and look into the light and the hope. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. So here in the very beginning, we're we're given a hint that all of human history is designed with Jesus as the object. Here at the beginning, we're given the hint and intimation that the miraculous preservation of the Jew, the miraculous preservation of the Jew in history and prophecy... The miraculous preservation of the Jew is in order to bring the king of the Jews so that sinners can be saved. And so, we discover that here at the beginning, we're given a hint of God's all-embracing goodness, God's all-embracing love, God's all-embracing mercy, the sovereignty of God in no way diminishes the significance of people making choices for or against God. You know, many efforts have been made to rid the world of the Jews, but none have succeeded. Lehman Strauss, a great Bible teacher from times past, wrote, quote, No man can destroy the Jew. You might as well try to destroy God as to destroy the Israel. In spite of all the persecutions, Israel is still a nation. He is the indestructible Jew. The king of Egypt couldn't destroy him in Exodus chapter 1 verse 15. The waters of the Red Sea couldn't drown him in Exodus chapter 14. The gallows of Haman couldn't hang him in Esther chapter 5. The great fish couldn't digest him in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17. The fiery furnace couldn't consume him in Daniel chapter 3. The lions couldn't devour him in Daniel chapter 6. A prophet couldn't curse him in Numbers 23.8. The nations couldn't either Esther three eight. The dictators can't annihilate him in Isaiah chapter 14. The Jews have survived the Crusades, the ghettos of Europe, the Holocaust, untold centuries of ridicule, prejudice, persecution from all the nations where they've been scattered. But they'll continue to be survivors until the Lord comes. Future efforts to destroy the Jews will be as futile as those in the past. Unquote. That's why I'm not worried about Hamas and Hezbollah. Do you think this is the Jewish people's first rodeo? (laughs) Our standing with God is not based on our ancestor's success or failure. We do not stand by the disgrace of a distant relative. We stand by the grace of the king of the Jews who over and over and over again in our study is going to invite you to be the king in your heart. And so in verse 17, look what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon, 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. By the way, Are we to believe that this genealogy is complete? Are some of the names left out? We have every reason to believe that lots of the names are left out. So why 14? Why does he use this strange way of compiling the data? You know, in my study, I discovered something. If you look at the Hebrew construct of the name David, it consists of three Hebrew letters, which carries the numeric value of 14, and remember, in a pre literate world, sometimes mnemonics, that means the way that we memorize things, served an important function. And so some scholars have suggested that the groupings are arranged in order to make it memorable. We use acronyms all the time. If I said FBI, what does that stand for? What would you say? Yeah, you say Federal Bureau of Investigation, I say full blooded Italian. It all depends on what you want to remember. But since the heading of the list is the son of David, I'm going to suggest to you that the writer's drawing attention through history of David's throne from Abraham to David. I'm going to suggest to you he's talking about from the establishment of the throne. To the dissolution of the throne, to the return of the coming king. That the argument is divided into three great covenants to Abraham, to David, and to Jesus. The The covenant, the promise given to Abraham, the promise given to David, and now a new promise. The promise that's going to be given by Jesus. A new and an everlasting covenant. He will break bread in Matthew's gospel and he will say, take this all of you and eat it. This is... My body, which will be broken for you. He's going to take a cup. Again, he's going to give thanks and praise. He's going to say, take this and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. William MacDonald writes, quote, It is strange that the ancestry of Joseph and Mary should merge In two men, Sheltiel and Zerubbabel. Here we have this strange situation for the careful Bible student. As you take Matthew's gospel's genealogy and Luke's gospel's genealogy and you lay them side by side, you see different names. And people say, how can they both be true? And I'm going to suggest to you at least one of the answers is because there is an exit in Luke's gospel... From Jeconoyah, and then the family tree reemerges again in Sheltiel and Zerubbabel. He rightly points out that both genealogies outline different family trees, but the numerical difference is rather profound. How do we explain that? How do we explain any Bible difficulty? Well, usually there's two ways of explaining a Bible difficulty. The first way is the panicked way I know that the Bible's filled with contradictions and discrepancies, and therefore I can't believe it. Or the second one I know that the Bible is true and that it's the Word of God, and that even though I don't understand what seems like an apparent contradiction, I'm going to believe that the problem isn't with the text, the problem's with me. And by the way, for the last 41 years, I've come across thousands and thousands and thousands of Bible questions, problems, and difficulties. There has been two great books that have been written. One is by my friend Norm Geisler, who wrote a book, When Skeptics Ask. He also wrote a companion called When Critics Ask. And of course, Gleason Archer also wrote a wonderful book called Great Bible Difficulties. And in these three volumes, they go through literally hundreds of questions, which fortunately I've, I've read and, and, and start to understand. In 41 years of being a Christian, there might be about 11 things that I've never, ever, ever been able to resolve that I've come to a satisfying conclusion that, that I think that this is the right answer. But then I remember what my pastor taught me so long ago. Chuck Smith said, never give up what you know for what you don't know. Never give up what you know for what you don't know. What do you know? What are you completely convinced of? What do you know? We know that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews and he's the king of my heart. We know that Jesus came. We know that he died on the cross for sin. We know that he rose from the dead. We know that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We know that those who will trust him, who will turn from their sin and turn to the Savior, that they can be saved. We know that the Bible is true. Even though we don't understand everything about the Bible. You know what's true? No Jewish person today has what we might call a legal genealogy. The genealogical records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Do you know what that means? Every pretend Messiah does not have the credentials to make the claim I'm the king of the Jews. And I should be the king of your heart. Warren Wiersbe writes, Jesus Christ is the only Jew alive today who can prove his rights to the throne of David, unquote. Again, the skeptic and the critic will say, no, he died on a cross. And we say, no, he rose from the dead. A thousand years before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise to David, a covenant, that a king would come and a kingdom would come that would last forever. That's what the book of Matthew is all about. It's about a king who comes, but the king who remains the king forever. And now we begin our journey. Into the gospel. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for that person, perhaps raised in a world of criticism and skepticism, of doubt and unbelief. And they wonder whether or not the Bible's true, and whether or not the record is true, and whether or not Jesus' claims are true. Lord, I pray that they would be convinced by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know that if I can talk them into it, someone a little more clever than me can talk them out of it. But Lord, if they're drawn by your Holy Spirit, if they're convinced by you that Jesus is King and that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus can save them from their sin, Lord, I pray that even now that they would Stop walking into the shadows, stop walking into deeper and darker rebellion, that they would stop and that they would just simply turn around and look full into the face of Jesus, who claims to be their king, who claims to be their Lord, who claims to be their future and that they would embrace him. In Jesus' name, amen.